Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Repetition is the foundation of knowledge. A student repeats vocabulary. An athlete repeats a physical movement. An apprentice repeats a task. A reporter repeats what someone else said so that it can be heard. Whether memorizing, practicing, recounting, drilling, or mastering, Repetition is a common denominator of all forms of education. More than this, in scripture, repetition represents an attention to detail intent on telling a story as it unfolds, literally, with no allowance for assumptions. Scripture does not talk about a story. Scripture is the story. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 34 to 40. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 390 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One of the interesting things about the Bible is the repetition. There's different reasons for repetition. One of the most obvious reasons is to drill something into the one hearing the story. I've said this many times, I've written about this, how the Bible is paternalistic in this sense. That is to say, in the same way that your father repeats himself, and you're stuck with whatever your dad told you as a kid, you can't get it out of your head, you're stuck with whatever it is the biblical writers keep repeating again and again and again, but there's a different type of repetition. And it stems from the fact that Scripture is not a philosophical text. It is telling you what is happening in the story, not what we can assume happened in the story. There are no assumptions in the biblical genre. It tells you exactly what happened. So, for example, if I were writing a story about asking my son Nadim to go to the hardware store. In the story, I would say to my son Nadim, when you get to the counter, explain to the man that you need a drill bit that is three-quarter inch so that we can use it to put a hole in the wall in order to mount this shelf hardware. If I were a biblical writer recounting that story, I would record me, the father, the dad in the story, telling my son Nadim exactly what I just said. And then when Nadim, in the story, arrives at 
the store at the counter at the Home Depot and begins to speak to the person working at the store, I would repeat the same thing on Nadim's lips at the store because that is exactly what would happen. There's no assumption. And then Nadim said what his dad told him to say. No, that's not how it works. You say what Nadim said when he was at the store. There are no assumptions. So we have to get this into our heads now because we live in a world of assumptions. Oh, what's the big deal? We know what he said. How do you know what he said? When you're in the court of law, you can't tell the judge, oh, we know what he said. What does the judge say? Can you please read the transcript? What did he say? That's the mentality of the biblical writer. That's the mentality of the whole genre. And you will be confronted with that forcefully in the judgment here in Matthew 25. When biblical writers repeat things, it's not because they have time on their hands or extra papyrus to fill out or a little bit of ink left in their ink well that they just want to use up. They don't do it just because, just because. There is a reason for the repetition. And here's a fantastic example. When I was writing about the sin of Jezreel in Hosea chapter 1, I was really struggling with this, as many authors do. And I realized that there was a problem in the way that Jehu, the king, was anointed. Because Elisha told the prophet in 2 Kings 9 the precise words to say to Jehu when he anointed him, and then it said, and turn around, close the door, and go away. Like, he put a period on that sentence. And the prophet went in, anointed Jehu as king, said the words that his teacher Elisha said, and then there were all these extra words that were there afterwards. And then he turned around, shut the door, and left. And I thought, wait a second, how come when Elisha says, use these words, now this prophet is saying it with different words? Now, someone could say, oh, you know, the, the, the son of the prophet was just expressing himself. He was not expressing himself. Or maybe he was expressing himself, and this was exactly the problem. Because if you look at the words that are in the prophet's speech, but not in Elisha's speech. They're about how Jehu is going to wreak vengeance against Jezebel. Elisha had no words about vengeance against Jezebel. And it just so happens that Jezebel was the one who killed the sons of the prophets, where Elisha's student, the one he sent on this mission, belonged. These were the messenger's brothers who were killed by Jezebel, and he feels free to add some words to King Jehu about how it's perfectly okay to take vengeance on behalf of the Lord against Jezebel. Hmm, interesting. Yes, Elisha's student was expressing himself, but the fact that he did not precisely repeat the words that his teacher said was the problem. The scriptural writers make it absolutely clear through repetition that the same thing was done. In the case of your example, Father, if the scriptural writers want to show how Nadim is 
a loyal, correct son, they will put precisely the words of his father in his mouth to speak. And then you know that he is loyal because of his precise repetition. So the precise repetition isn't to bore the reader. It's to underscore the loyalty and the correctness of the son. It's the same mechanism in Daniel, this famous line. I mean, you hear it in chapter three and you keep hearing it and you keep hearing it. And it's harder for scholars to wrap their minds around this because what is being taught by this line then the herald loudly proclaimed to you the command is given o peoples nations and men of every language that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn flute lyre trigon psaltery bagpipe and all kinds of music you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up and then it goes on and you keep hearing this over and over again but whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. The funny thing is, and this of course keeps getting read over and over again because the command keeps getting repeated, but it's exactly your point. On the one hand, it demonstrates the loyalty to the king's decree because the whole text is about the loyalty of the three young men to the Torah. So it's all about loyalty. So the whole tension is about who's faithful to whose decree. And you better believe it's, in a way, a court case. And we're going to hear the test read into the transcript verbatim as it happened. They are not talking about what happened. I want to keep going back to this point. Just like we can't talk about Scripture, Scripture isn't talking about what happened. When it's talking, it's telling you the actual story. Scripture does not write about an event. Scripture is the event. Scripture creates the event in your mind, and as soon as you hear that, you start to build a picture in your mind, and you start to see details that aren't in the text. And, even worse, you ignore the details that are in the text. This is why people hear Elisha and Elisha's student say the same thing. Even when you compare the transcript that Scripture provides, as if it's transcribing something that actually happened, it actually is showing you something that is different, and the reader needs to be paying attention. So when there are these precise repetitions, there is a method to this. We, I was doing a Bible study this week, and we were covering Ezekiel 14, and he repeats all the different ways that he could completely destroy Jerusalem by sword, by famine, by pestilence, whatever. And the point is, if you figure out one way to protect yourself, there's three more ways that can come get you. That's the point. The point is, what is it about? I mean, you could say, what is it about the sword? What is it about the pestilence? What is it about the famine? That's fine. You can ask those questions. Those are there. But you don't say like, oh, so when the United States builds nuclear bombs, then, uh, you know, how does this talk about nuclear bombs? It doesn't talk about nuclear bombs. You're now like creating a story and you're making connections. You have to be very careful. You have to go back to the details. So in this particular passage, we get a lot of repetition about the three servants, the slaves and the talents. We've had a repetition of themes and ideas about being let in, being cast out, not being let in. These themes keep getting repeated in different stories. 
And it all comes back to this point about what happens when it's time for God to destroy Jerusalem. So we have to read these stories in that context. That's why we kept talking about how the story about the talents is not about building programs, because it's appearing here in this text, and you can't ignore the details that are in the text and start adding the questions and stuff that you care about. There, You can't figure out how to plan your church picnic from Scripture. It doesn't talk about how to plan a picnic. All we know at the wedding of Cana is you should serve the good wine first, but I don't know if that actually applies. Making it apply is always tricky, and reading and understanding Scripture without a precise knowledge of the words and careful attention to detail about what is said and what is not said can lead us astray from our understanding. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared to you from the foundation of the world. This word in Greek is so terribly abused, kleidonomeo, which is the word for inheritance or to inherit. This idea that you can inherit something. It is so terribly abused in an imperial setting. It's abused within the context of modern nationalism. English translations of the Bible influenced by nationalism and Zionism, just like Christian theology influenced by imperialism, always twist inheritance and gift into possession. Father Paul has spent a lot of time on this in his work on Genesis. It is not a possession. You don't possess the land. You don't possess anything. That's why, as I've said about my own Middle Eastern heritage, it's not mine. It's a gift. You don't have a heritage. That's why nationalism is a farce. Nobody is anything. There is no identity. It's all a lie. It's all a big joke in the eyes of God. Everything is temporary and transient and is passing. So this inheritance, it's tricky. Even the word inherit, you imagine that you get something and it belongs to you. Not so. It belongs not even to Jesus, but to the Father. He's the one who possesses. He's the one who is the proprietor. He's the one who offers the gift. And even in the way that it's being presented here in Matthew, Richard, it's being presented as a potential gift, but we still have the cross ahead of us. So really, we have to get it through our heads that we don't have any entitlement and we don't have any possession. And what God is offering to us is the opportunity to live in the palm of his hand if we simply accept his commandments. The one thing we neglected to mention last week is that this passage in Matthew also reflects Psalm 2, because the Lord's anointed is now on Mount Zion as the conqueror, and the nations are being gathered before him. And it's simply a question now of who submits to the law and who does not. That's what we're dealing with here when we deal with this inheritance that has been prepared. Because if you submit to God's Torah, then you can live. But it's not like you get a prize or that you own something. 
So can we once and for all stop with this immoral theology of the reward system for being a good little kid? This notion of inheritance is, like you said, Father, it's so easily abused because when an American hears this, they think, oh, a kingdom, I'm going to inherit a kingdom. That means I'm going to become a king of my own kingdom. And there are some very well-established theologies out there that teach precisely that. But as Father Paul has been talking about in his Genesis discussion, inheritance doesn't mean now it belongs to you to possess. It's different. It's different. You cannot separate this inheritance from the one from whom you inherited it. It is still the king's. It was handed to you as an inheritance, not as a possession. This means that you cannot claim ownership and then establish your own law. The king to whom this actually pertains, to whom this actually belongs, is the same one who establishes the law for that land, for that possession. And this is what the kingdom is. That is what the rule is. Just because you inherited it doesn't mean that it does not belong to the king, that the king no longer rules it. As the ones who are loyal to this king, you now have been handed this kingdom to dwell in, but it's still the king's law. You can't now do with it whatever you want. You don't get to live your life the way that you want because now you're the king. You still pertain to that king, and it's only because of your loyalty to that king that you're allowed to inherit this. But at the point of inheritance doesn't mean now you can do whatever you want. And this is where people go astray. They think now it belongs to me. Now I can do what I want. And this is what every colonizer does. Every colonizer has to make a story for themselves to say that the land was empty. In the United States, we talk about the virgin wilderness, and we ignore that there are people that were living on it. They weren't really living on it. They were just kind of walking around on top of it. Now we're going to own it. And now we can do whatever we want. We can kick them off. We can kill them. We can allow them to live on it, however we happen to be feeling. But only when we understand that the land belongs to the Lord do we function according to the law of the Lord, even if this is our inheritance. This is how we have to understand it. The law of the king is still in effect. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And here, Richard, I just want to pause for just a moment, because we're about to hear the same thing again, back to back. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And here I want to go back to what you said just before I read these verses, Richard, that we need to be clear about what the king's directive was. It's the same as Daniel, except now we're talking about the father of Jesus, not Nebuchadnezzar's decree. So first we hear 
Jesus read the command of his father, and then we hear those under judgment repeat the decree that Jesus read aloud from the lips of his father so that everybody is clear, including those hearing the story, what was said, and we all understand what is happening. There's no assumptions. We're not hearing about what happened. We see with our ears what is happening in the story, and there is no question. We are absolutely certain this is what is being said in the story as we see with our ears now what is happening. One of the ways that I read the biblical text is sometimes I think, what would be another way that the author could have written this story and then figure out why he wrote it the way that he did, or at least come to some understanding? So he could have said, when I was vulnerable, you took care of me. And then they said, huh? You could have written the story like that. <laughs> and you would be missing all of these details. So evidently, these details are very important. Why is it that he has to go into four different ways or five different ways, multiple ways of how they helped him? him specifically, which is the king speaking. Very interesting. He didn't say you help the vulnerable people. He said you help me. This is the king speaking. It doesn't make sense. When was the king vulnerable? So it's clear why they were confused. The king said it in a confusing way. He could have said, when there were hungry people, you fed them. No. He said, when I was hungry, you fed me. Hmm. I'm confused too. When was the king hungry? He's a king. He doesn't go hungry. That's strange. So the king is repeating this over and over, not just to talk about these ways that human beings are vulnerable, but to say that he identifies with these people, that they represent him. Remember, we had the parable a long time ago about what happened when the son was sent to the wicked workers of the land, and they killed him because they wanted the inheritance. But it was because it was his son that they thought they could get the inheritance. These vulnerable people represent the king to these people in every way that human beings can be vulnerable. This is the repetition. Then the people repeat Obviously, they were listening. They were able to repeat back exactly the list that the king listed. So they were listening, but they're still confused. So they knew what the law was, but they didn't know how they were fulfilling it. Aha, this sounds like the Sermon on the Mount. This is what it looks like when the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. They know the law, but they didn't know when they were doing it. They were listening to him. They could repeat back his words but they didn't know that they were practicing it. The fact that they can repeat it shows that they're listening. The fact that they were doing it shows that they're obedient. The fact that the king keeps repeating all these different ways that are vulnerable and repeating that they are him shows that he identifies with every person who is vulnerable. This is the function of the repetition. I have only one thing else to say about those verses. I mean, we could spend a lifetime talking about each and every one of the questions that Jesus asks. 
I have only one thing to say. If I look at the list of sins that everyone talks about on Facebook and in theology discussions and on internet discussion groups and in their reactionary theological online debates and in their activism marches and all the stuff people are doing now that they call Christianity. I mean, enough is enough. I'm just going to say it like it is, Rich. If I look at all the nonsense people call Christianity and all the things they get worked up about, about other people's sins, and I look at what Jesus is talking about here, those lists don't calibrate. That's all I need to say. So the next time you think you're bearing witness to the faith by condemning somebody, just calibrate whatever it is you're talking about with this list. And right out of the gate, if you're talking about someone else and not yourself, you're already canceled. And if you can get past that first ring, then tell me if what you're talking about makes this list. And if you get past that, then tell me if it's on this list. If you can't get past those criteria, what are you talking about? Just sit down and study Hebrew. If you can't study Hebrew because Arabic and Hebrew are too difficult for your American brain, uh, just do Greek. It's easier. But stop judging your neighbor. For Christ's sake. Look at your Google timeline and see how many soup kitchens were you at over the past month? How many refugee centers were you at in the past month? How many hospitals or prisons were you at in the past month? Just look. Google can be your witness. Most likely it's zero. So I would spend less time on Facebook and more time going to the places where you need to go. Now you won't be as righteous as these people because your right hand is going to know what your left hand is doing, but at least you can do what you know is the right thing. The king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Notice that the only thing the anointed one of Israel, God's king, seated on Mount Zion, the only thing he's concerned about, what did you do to one of these so come on, friends. Let's be serious. Even when you posted about the least of these, you posted about me. That's not what it says. You don't post about them. You go and you help them. You do something. You have to move your feet in Matthew. Don't assimilate to some sort of culture or some identity that shows that you're on the right side of anything. Your Google timeline is going to show you everything you need to know. Where were you spending your time? Where did your feet take you? Where were your hands active? If you're sitting at home posting, you did nothing for the least of these. The king does not care about what effort you posted about. What did you do? Last week I talked about a podcast of a woman who would go to war zones in order to get recompense for families who lost health, limbs, and lives because of American wars. And she would go to people's houses where they had suffered 
from war physically and have coffee with them or tea with them and hear their stories, write them down, find out who could get them money and bring money to them. Was this going to settle any claim that they had? Who knows? But she spent her entire life until she was killed on the road to the Baghdad airport taking care of the least of these. Was she Christian? I don't know. Do we know if any of the people in this story are Christian? I don't know. The only criterion is not correct belief. It's did you take care of the least of these, namely the king himself. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.